What is good, everybody? Welcome to another episode in Ephesians. Uh, Look, we're not out of chapter one yet, okay? I know if you thought this was going to be a speedy series, uh, you can't get your hopes up. We're chugging along at a snail's pace. But as we do that, we are are really finding some gems, some things that often get overlooked when you tend to rush through parts of the Bible. And so I'm glad that we're able to take our time with these verses, take our time with what Paul is saying, take our time to really unpack um, a lot of these ideas and a lot of these things that often get overlooked. But before we do, I just wanted to remind y'all that if you want to get in contact with me, if you want to, to reach out or ask questions or anything like that, I have a Facebook page, Instagram page, and an email for the podcast. It's all down in the uh, description or in the show notes below. And also, if you do want to support this podcast, support the ministry, um, there's a link as well to do that. Um, Your gifts and and your generosity really does help this podcast reach more and more people. But we're going to be reading through Ephesians 1. Uh, We're going to get through two verses today. Yeehaw! Two verses. We're going to be chugging along, and we're going to be reading through verses 15 and 16. Um, Oh, no, I lied. 15, 16, and 17. Oh, my goodness. We're getting through three. Okay. Uh, I want to go ahead and hop into this because it will be somewhat lengthy and filled with um, just a lot of stuff. So let's go ahead and start reading it. In verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, it's like we always do. We're going to break this down verse by verse. So once again, Paul said, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you. And I feel like this sentiment that Paul shares is one of the more overlooked attributes that Christians should be striving to attain every single day. And that sentiment is this, that followers of Christ, so you and me, would have a faith and a love towards God's people that is so undeniable, that is so clear, that is so potent that it is impossible for others to not know about it and to not hear about it. And I think we either forget or neglect the fact that our day-to-day conduct is a direct correlation to who God is in many people's minds. Remember a few episodes back when we talked about me being made in the image of God, that it is not merely a characteristic of humanity, right? It's not something just intrinsic to what humans are, but it's also a command for humanity to properly represent who God is. Every action we take will not only be put under a microscope, because as Christians, everything that we do gets judged by the outside world, by the secular world, in a fashion that is not fairly distributed. And the reason why is because as followers of Christ, we claim to know the creator of all things. We claim to know the savior of the whole world, but we also claim that there is a moral code, a way of living. And that way of living was given to us by 
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we also claim that the only way to find eternal life and forgiveness is through him. So it it follows then that every action we take will be put under a microscope. But it also affects the view, the actions that we take. It affects the view that many people have regarding Jesus and his people. And it would be foolish for us to simply brush this fact aside and claim that it is the fault of the non-believers. It's easy for us to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, they should know that what we do does not actually mean that this is how God is or that that Jesus approves of this. But when we do that, we're neglecting the fact that we were given the command to live this way so that we could be a light to the world. So if we're being honest, it would end up, the fault would end up falling on us. In the Apostle Paul here, in the way that he is commending them for their faith and their love toward the saints, he is not shy in calling out the good actions of the churches that he planted. But he's also not shy about calling out the bad actions within the body of Christ either. We see throughout many of his letters that he starts either with a call of praise or a call for change. And this is utterly important because if we are made to be God's images, then we better do everything we can to live up to that task. And here in Ephesians, Paul is commending these believers for their faith and love. And this is good. This is a good thing. But I want to look at some of Paul's other intros for his letters that are in the New Testament um, so we can see kind of the survey of the land, see how things are going um, at this time that Paul is writing them. And notice the good that Paul calls out towards certain groups and the bad that Paul calls out. So let's start in Philippians 1, verse 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here, Paul is giving praise to the Philippian church because they are partnering in the gospel with him. Presumably, they're not just following the gospel and being good Christians, but they're sharing God's word and evangelizing to those who are around them. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, if you were paying attention, this one here in Colossians is very, very similar to what Paul says here in Ephesians. He is commending them for the faith that they have in Christ and the love that they have for their fellow neighbor. And it this should be something that we we take note of. It's astounding that their faith and their love was so profound that it was impossible for people like Paul to not hear about it. It had to be reported. It had to be shared because it was something so other than what the societal norm was that the news of it was spread and Paul heard about it and so he commends them. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2-3. through We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is 
calling out the fact that they have been doing great work. They've been laboring in love and they've been keeping on to the hope for Jesus Christ. Now we get into some other ones here. Uh, the not so good. First Timothy. In verses uh, 3 through 4 in the first chapter, Paul's talking to Timothy about a situation that's going on in Ephesus. And so it's not Timothy that Paul is calling out. Paul's actually calling on Timothy to fix the problem that we're about to read. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So as I said, in this situation, Timothy was in Ephesus. And at this time, there was false teaching going on, and it was bad enough that word got to Paul. <laughs> it was that bad that someone was like, hey, yo, Paul, homie, you hear what these clowns saying down in Ephesus? And Paul had to set, set things straight. What about Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, that sounds great so far. What about verse 6? It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Oh, that one's bad. That one's rough. You can feel the secondhand embarrassment. Because there were some people in the Galatian church that had already started abandoning the gospel of Christ. They started believing another gospel, a false teaching. And it was that bad and it was that shocking that news got to Paul. Oh, that's rough. So what was the, what was the point of going through some of these intros in Paul's letters? What was the point of this survey? Well, let me answer that, I guess, with the question. If you had a report of your actions. If Paul was writing you a letter, let's say Paul was alive today, and he was writing you a letter, or your church a letter, or just you individually. And at the beginning of the letter, when he's given his intro before he starts diving into the deep meat, uh, he gives a report of what he has heard about the things you have done and the way you have behaved and the way that you've shown your faith and love towards others as a Christian, how do you think the start of your letter would go? And be honest, would, would Paul be commending you for your unfailing faith and love towards God's people? Would he be, would he be praising you for how powerful your actions through Christ have been so much so that news was spread all across the city of the things that you've done and the faith that you had and the passion you had for Christ. Would he be thanking you for your support in spreading the gospel? Or would he be calling you out for laziness, for a lack of faith, for a lack of following God's commands or for improperly representing Christ, would he call you out because in the moment where you would have been able to refute some false teaching or refute immoral ideas in your friend group and you just sat there quiet, what, what would your report be in Paul's letter to you? 
And if I'm being honest, this is a question that I don't really want to answer for myself either. Because I have my own shortcomings that would most certainly be on the front page of Paul's letter to me. I don't think that Paul would be commending me for my unfailing faith that was so profound that every single person in my life knew about it to the point where the news was spreading city to city. I don't think Paul would be commending me for my selfless, unfailing love where I gave everything I had to help others instead of just enriching myself. And and this fact for not just me, but honestly for all of us, this, this seriously needs to get us thinking because for the believers that Paul is writing to in Ephesians, Paul literally heard a report about how great their faith was and how powerful their love showed. And this is amidst a culture that actively persecuted Christians. Not just verbally, not just saying that Christians were Bible thumpers or that they were homophobic, transphobic, uh, racist. It, it, all of, it wasn't that. It wasn't just verbal persecution. We're talking about actual persecution, like getting your property stolen, getting kicked out of your home, getting kicked out of your city, being exiled, being beaten, being killed. We're talking about actual persecution. And amidst that reality, the believers that Paul is writing to still had a faith and a love that was so profound that Paul was unable to avoid hearing about it. And I just wonder who in the world is hearing about the faith that you and I are supposed to be showing? Who in the world is hearing about the love that you and I have shared with God's people? And if the answer is nobody, then I think we need to make some changes. But if the answer is, oh, they're hearing about it, we need to slow down and say, not so fast, because is the report that they are hearing one that is worthy of praise or one that is worthy of condemnation? Paul goes on in, uh, at the last part of verse 16, going into verse 17. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So kind of changing gears here, but this is still uh, very important, at least for the topic that we've been discussing. This is something I've been thinking about lately because it seems that there are a lot of biblically ignorant Christians today. And I'm I'm bringing up this topic because Paul just said here that he he looks forward to the spirit or to uh to God giving the believers the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him in the knowledge of God. And so that got me thinking about how many Christians believers People that say that they follow Christ, how many of them actually know what the Bible says? Not just a few books of the Bible, but how many of them actually understand the biblical story, actually are biblically literate, can actually read, comprehend, and understand the words that God relayed 
thousands of years ago. And it seems that there are a lot of Christians today that can't do that. And I don't exactly know why. Because for Paul, he looks forward to God revealing the knowledge of himself to his fellow believers. And logically, that would come from their interactions with people like Paul and, um, you know, even Paul's uh, pupils and followers and co-workers in the gospel and other well-versed believers. That is the, the future that Paul is looking toward, that God would bless these people that Paul is writing to with not just wisdom, but also knowledge of who God is and the things concerning him. And if Paul expects that outcome for first century believers that not only were being persecuted and being killed and being you know beaten and exiled from their homes, but also believers that didn't have full unfettered access to scripture. It wasn't free. A majority of them were illiterate. They couldn't read. They relied on somebody else to read some of the few manuscripts that they had. And if Paul was expecting them to have a full revelation of the knowledge of God, what more would be expected of us today? In a world where we have full access to God's word in every language imaginable, in every translation you could ever imagine, free resources that help you understand the context, commentaries that are free from people who have done years and years and years of studying that help you understand the more nuance and the tie-ins and the things that are going on. Bibles that are free. Bibles that you can get on your phone, that you can look at for the end of time. The access and the ability to fully dive into God's Word in order to have the knowledge of Him. We have access to that, but yet the amount of biblical illiteracy that we see in the church today is astonishing. And you see, the writer of Hebrews calls out this same sort of idea. In chapter 5, he says this in verse 12 about the believers. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's calling them out. He says, yo, by this time, you've had X amount of years since you've learned about the gospel. You've had access to these things. By this time, you shouldn't just be sitting in, in the church, listening and, and taking it in. You should be teaching, but still you need someone to teach you again. Just the, the basics, like the, the first grade level basics of Scripture and of God. And he relates that to a baby that still needs milk, a baby that can't even get to solid food yet, a, a baby that has been living for 18, 19, 20, 50, 60 years that for some reason has never matured enough to actually go on to the things that have more substance that actually will help them thrive and survive in this life. And what is the 
What's the importance of biblical literacy and, and the knowledge of God? Like, why is that important? Why, why am I on my soapbox here? Well, it, it's not to show off or make yourself out to be a better believer. It's not so you can one-up somebody in an argument just to prove your point. The, the whole purpose of having biblical literacy and knowledge of God and, and not just literacy and knowledge of God at a first grade level, but one that continues to grow every single day. The purpose of that, as the writer of Hebrews states, is so that you can be skilled in the word of righteousness. But why is it important to be skilled in the word of righteousness? Because some might say, can't you still fully know God and experience him and experience his love without knowing the Bible in some weird detached spiritual sense? And that's kind of the way that Christianity is moving today, that that God is no longer a the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world that revealed his moral code that revealed his love for us through his word that was then physically manifested in Jesus that then died for our sins. Christianity is, is really turning away from that. And it's turning into a God is feeling, God is emotion, God is just purely love and nothing else. He helps me, he loves me, he blesses me, he's there for me. God is here for me. And God has been turned into this weird, just distant spiritual thing that you're just supposed to follow and, and love and be a part of. And there's no structure. There's no definite structure in a lot of Christian churches today of who exactly God is, what exactly God wants, and why God wants it. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we actually come to know God? How do we come to know Christ? And the only consistent, objective, repeatable way that we can do this is through his word. Through his revealed word in Holy Scripture. From those who walked with God who witnessed the life of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection, how do we come to know what God wants and what Jesus wants? How do we come to know how we actually be in relationship with this God and find salvation from this God? By reading his words that are revealed in Holy Scripture. How do we come to know what to do and what not to do in order to live according to his moral code in the Holy Scripture? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Is that if we try and have this idea of God that he is just some being out there, that the only way you can access him or know about him is just through this feeling, just through what your soul or your spirit feels, just through what your emotion feels, just through something that was revealed just to you. No, no, no. Because that's purely subjective. It can't be agreed upon. But what's not subjective, what is objective and what can be agreed upon is the word that God revealed to creation. 
And every single one of us can go back to that word and look at what it is that God wants from us. We can look and figure out who God is. But it's even bigger than that. Because the author of Hebrews here states that deeper knowledge and understanding of God's word doesn't just help us understand who God is, but it allows us to be able to discern from good and evil. And one thing that we can know is that things in and of themselves, fully detached from anything else, are not good or evil. They don't have a moral virtue. They only come with a moral virtue if they are attached to something, attached to an objective moral standard. And as I've said many times on this podcast, that moral standard has to be grounded in something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, everything would be subjective. All morality would be purely subjective because all humans disagree on what is good and what is bad. And if that's the case, then one human being cannot say to another human being that an action that they are taking is wrong if everything is purely subjective, if everything is purely internal. There has to be an objective standard that is outside of any and all human will or decision that we can abide by. So morality, simply put, is grounded in the goodness of God, regardless of how we, how we feel about it. And when this fact is neglected, we can fall into a society that says it's good to kill unborn children or that it's good to live a homosexual lifestyle or that it's good to pillage and destroy other human beings. And as long as morality is treated as subjective, human beings will continue to fight against each other. And this is why the quote-unquote good is not a man-made standard. If it was a man-made standard, the good would be shifting every single day. And if any of you pay attention to the news and things that go on in society, whatever country you're living in, you will see how things that were once called good five, six, seven years ago are now called evil, abhorrent, and wrong. The good cannot be determined by man. It has to be grounded in something outside of our own fleeting subjective opinions. And the good is a God-made standard. And we come to know of the quote-unquote good by reading the very word that God provided to mankind. This is why biblical literacy is so utterly important. And this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. That believers who actually know what the Bible says and have spent time to study it and have it on their hearts, they will be able to discern good from evil. And this applies not only to worldly actions and worldly situations, but it also applies to belief systems and teachings that happen within the church. You know, the Bible never expects believers to simply bow down to any man and believe what they say because they claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit or they claim to be uh, you know, blessed by God to preach or to lead a word or lead the church or to pastor. The Bible never, never expects believers to just simply bow down to what a pastor says, no holds barred, and believe everything that they say. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes through and he tells them, 
hey guys, uh, Christ actually rose from the dead. And I'm not just going to tell you that and expect that you believe me and completely change your life, but I actually want to prove it to you. I want to tell you that he appeared not only to the 12 disciples, he appeared to me, but he also appeared to 500 other people. And guess what? Some of those people are still alive today if you want to go check out what I'm saying to make sure I'm not lying to you. And the reason why Paul does this is because later on he says, oh yeah, and, and you might want to go actually check with those people and validate what I'm saying to you because if I'm wrong and Jesus did not actually raise from the dead, then our entire faith is useless. We're completely wasting our time. Paul himself didn't expect the Corinthian people to just simply believe him because he told them to or he claimed to have uh, an appointment from God. And the same goes for believers today. Too many believers are still on milk. They only learn about the Bible from what little of it is preached on a Sunday. And they take their pastor's word as the whole truth and nothing they have not taken any time to check what is being preached with Scripture because they have never read it in the first place. And this is a very dangerous place for believers to be in because in this spot, they cannot discern good from evil. They cannot discern truth from falsehood. So their entire belief system is being constructed by one man and his individual beliefs and motives instead of by the holy word of God. And this is why I have pleaded with y'all in, in multiple episodes. If you've been listening to me long enough, you know I have said this multiple times, to not take my word for anything. Don't just listen to one of my podcasts and automatically say, yep, that's it. Dante said it. It settles it. That's exactly how I'm supposed to understand this. This is the belief I'm not going to have. Because the truth of the matter is, I do believe that the views I have are correct. Other people hold these views as well. But it's impossible for me to be right on everything. And I could very well be wrong. I could very well have misinterpreted a passage. I very well could have used a passage out of context. I very well could have made a mistake. And I want you to always fact check me. Always fact check your pastors. Always fact check the, the spiritual leaders that you listen to on YouTube, on the radio, wherever it is. Always fact check what they say with what God's word says for yourself. And I love that this actually happens from time to time. On some of the episodes on YouTube, uh, you can actually comment on the YouTube videos on the episodes that I post here on, you know, various podcast sites, but also on YouTube. And I'll have listeners from time to time comment and challenge my positions on various topics. And they'll present their points in a very respectful and um, diligent way. And it allows me to make sure I'm not missing anything. And sometimes I go, you know what, you're right. And sometimes I may still disagree and we dialogue, but at the very least, I love that. I love seeing that because it shows me that people are not just taking my word for it. They're, they're biblically literate and they're actually fact-checking what is being said. And that is a sign of someone who is no longer surviving off of milk, but they have moved on to solid food. So 
going back to Ephesians to, to wrap up, when Paul prays that God will give them the revelation of knowledge of God, this is not merely an implantation of knowledge into your brain. It's not like the Holy Spirit just puts a, a just implements the entire Bible into your brain and all the knowledge of God into your brain, and now all of a sudden you are some superhuman in the matrix. That's that's not how the process works. What it is is a process that requires you to work and study and to desire to know God deeper. And the Holy Spirit has already given you all the supplies. You have all the resources. But it's still your choice whether or not you move on from milk to solid food.